For KOSU News, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Well, April 1st has come and gone without an education budget as required by law since 2003. While not abnormal, it did come one year after the teacher walkout at the state capitol. Ryan, are you surprised an education budget wasn't released? Not surprised. I think they've met this deadline two times in the last 17 years. One time was last year during uh, in the lead up to the walkout, and I think then there was some political pressure in the hopes of, of averting the walkout at that point and, and uh, having some sort of a political solution that would have kept teachers in the classrooms instead of out at the Capitol demanding the, the funding that their classrooms and the schools and teachers so desperately need in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, I think that this year is a little bit more poignant than the many other years. I, this has become just kind of a, uh, a boilerplate press release for uh, the party that's not in the majority. And for the most part, that's been the Democrats the last many years. And I can remember being a part of the Democratic caucus and April 1st rolls around and you've got this statutory obligation that everybody just, you know, kind of ignores and you use it as an opportunity to talk about funding for education in the classrooms. Democrats are certainly doing that uh, this year. But like I said, there's there's a little bit more resonance to it this year, given the proximity and you know, it being a year anniversary from the funding and the teacher walkout from last year. And even Republicans have said that they do actually are getting close to possibly having an education budget soon. Well, and I think it's important to remember, I mean, last year they the legislature had been basically in nonstop nonstop motion. I mean, they'd had a legislative session, special session, special session, legislative session. So they were they were well into the budget budgeting process by the time they reached April 1st and the and then mix in the teacher, you know, the teacher walkout and everything else. But I think the bottom line to remember also is that Republicans and Democrats alike uniformly believe and remain committed to the number one priority being education in the state. The issue of the budget process is one that is is has to be fixed. I mean, there are structural problems with, with getting the budget uh, passed and, and, and making this happen in a timely fashion. And when you look at it right now, we're at a place where the House has a set of numbers, the Senate has a set of numbers, the governor has a set of numbers. Everyone comes to the table initially with different information. And so I think it puts the it puts the onus on the legislature and the governor to now really work in a concerted fashion as the Republican majority to fix these problems so that the budgetary process becomes a much more transparent but a much more timely process. And we've talked about this on here before about even the, the concept of having budget only sessions. And you know, Neva mentions transparency. There are budget negotiations that are happening right now, but they're happening between legislative leadership and the governor's office. They're usually behind closed doors. The public, most legislators aren't really privy to what's happening right now. We're hearing that the budget negotiations are moving so quickly at the Capitol this year that they could potentially be out around the 1st of May. I mean, they're talking about two, three week, <clears throat> or, uh, an adjournment that would be two to three weeks before the end of May when they're uh, obligated to, to adjourn for the year. So this the the budget is and we've i think that there's agreement that the number one priority of the legislature their biggest obligation their biggest charge is to pass a budget to fund services for the state of Oklahoma and that huge obligation is usually 
behind closed doors and it's rushed out at the very end. And, you know, even lawmakers don't have a full appreciation for what it is that they're voting on. But the other part of that is you have to have a process where you do have to have negotiations. And negotiations are not going to be everybody open up the big room, come in, and we have a free-for-all negotiating. That's why you have legislative leaders. That's why you have the governor has negotiators or the governor is the negotiator on, on behalf of his office. I mean, you have a system in place where you have to have this give and take. You have input from your members. I mean, obviously, uh, the 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 uh, Republicans in the majority are going to influence this process much more uh, much more profoundly than than the minority. But there is still there is still the opportunity for everyone to have a say. That's why we have a budget committee and subcommittee hearings. That's why we have these lengthy processes that go on. I do think uh, you're right, Ryan. I mean, the the general consensus that tends to bubble up every time this year is that that legislators are going to finish early and they're going to be out two or three weeks early. And how many times have we heard that and it didn't materialize, uh, regardless of whether the budget's passed or other things are in place? There seems to be plenty of business that will keep them there till almost the last day of May. So, uh, but the but I think in terms of looking at this bigger picture, it is important for there to be a very you know a very robust dialogue with uh, all of these uh, parties to make sure that they pass a budget that is a workable budget. I mean, they've got a lot of they've got a lot of people uh, now wanting to uh, wanting dollars. I mean, they're in a budget position this year much differently than the past, and they've got to make sure that they move wisely in in, uh, uh, passing the appropriations. Last week, we talked about the settlement between Attorney General Mike Hunter and Purdue Pharma to give $270 million to the OSU Health Center. Since then, state leaders have raised concerns about the settlement. Neva, you mentioned a, a bit about this last week. What are those concerns? Well, I think I think it's the uh, the normal concerns that you have when you have elected officials across the board all uh, all having their uh, their view uh, and their opinions and and their concerns and questions about things that they things that happen as this settlement rolled out uh, lawmakers uh, uh, many uh, expressing publicly and privately uh, concerns that uh, that uh, that the that the attorney general and his actions may or may not have met with what they viewed his constitutional role I think as that as time has progressed I think while we have uh, while we have differences in opinion and uh, a lot of things happening kind of behind the scenes we also have a situation where um, this is an ongoing process I mean this week I mean they're back uh, uh, they're back in the in the courtroom and in Norman and and things are moving forward with these other uh, these other pharmaceutical companies toward a May 28th trial date whether that happens or whether there are more settlements on the horizon remains to be seen but I think when you look look at this kind of tug of war between the attorney general who one time was a, a house member himself uh, years ago uh, uh, when he served six years in the in the state house I, he you have this give and take and I think what we have after all of this is a process where every every party may not be happy but they have to move forward to see where we get this end result with these these particular lawsuits in question right I mean I, I've heard uh, absolute outrage uh, at the Capitol I mean lawmakers and in particular in the Republican caucus I mean we've heard a few Democrats uh, representative Jason Dunnington speak mm-hmm. out but the real consternation here comes from Republicans that felt that they were excluded from that process that they weren't fully informed of the settlement negotiations that were happening and you know in, in fairness to the Attorney General and the private counsel that were on this case, 
they saw a, a nest on the ground and they felt that if they didn't take that, uh, then you, you were going to end up in a situation where you had a defendant declaring bankruptcy and the state of Oklahoma wasn't going to get anything. I think that lawmakers have raised some very good points about the structure of the settlement, about you know how moving forward, you know, the lawmakers and the legislature should be involved. You know, should there, in the event that somebody finds that the attorney general acts, acted outside of his constitutional and statutory prerogatives here, you know, the, that raises a good question for the state. Should we empower the attorney general to be able to make decisions like that, that are critical, that are fast moving? And, you know, in the event that you try to bring the legislature, we talked, we were just talking about the budget, <laughs> months long negotiations over a budget. I mean, can you really bring the legislature in, in a meaningful way into settlement negotiations that doesn't undermine the interest of your client, the state of Oklahoma, the people of Oklahoma. Right. It seems the biggest complaint, though, is not the fact that he settled. That is actually his job. He's an attorney general. He's the top prosecutor of Oklahoma. It was the fact that he allocated funds, which is actually that is the job of the legislature. We're talking yeah. about budgets. That's the job of the legislature. And I think that's where the rub is. And I think that's where this ongoing conversation will have to uh, have to move forward. I mean, uh, the attorney general went to the Republican caucuses on Monday in the, in the House and the Senate, answered questions, uh, you know, uh, had a give and take exchange. That's a healthy part of this process. It's not it's not a process that everyone is going to always be happy with, but it has to be one that at least there's there is the opportunity to to vet and and vent and have uh, have uh, have their say and I think that's what we saw with some of the lawmakers uh, you know in their initial reaction but now I think as you say Ryan and Michael it, it's a case of figuring out how do we move forward and how as these dollars are appropriated as these things are put into place how does it look long term because at some point there will have to be monies appropriated to continue this down the road so it's something that is going to involve the legislature long term short term and always and so i think i think the important thing hopefully is that all parties can stay in dialogue that it doesn't become a combative uh, uh, situation where they can't move forward particularly when we have so many other things happening and oklahoma was first in line. We were we had the opportunity to move the needle on this. We did. Uh, it will be interesting to see if that continues uh, in the in the next few weeks uh, as we lead up to this trial date. So it's a very fast track process, and not everyone's going to be read in uh, at the time they necessarily want to be. But I I don't think it's a case of of uh, someone uh, of entities trying to you know to box out other entities. I think it's a matter of just uh, the the kind of the lay of the landscape as, a, as we see it right now. And Michael, you talk about allocation of funds. There are some big questions right now about the foundation that will ultimately get this money. I think that at, during the settlement, there was a, the announcement, there was a sense that there was some existing entity and it appears that, you know, to the extent that it exists, it's, it's very uh, surface level. And then there's also this possibility that the Sackler family and, uh, and Purdue Pharma could be in a situation now where they're going to get a tax benefit for contributing money to a 501c3 organization where they're going to have some tax uh, shelter for money that they're paying for the millions uh, or the hundreds of thousands of lives that have been affected and the thousands of people that have been killed as a result of their product. And that's a big question, and I think lawmakers want some answers there. Vandals strike central Oklahoma buildings with hate-filled graffiti. Swastikas and racist language was spray-painted last week at the State Democratic Party headquarters and Choctaw Nation building in Oklahoma City, and this week in Norman at the Cleveland County Democratic Party and the Firehouse Art Center and McKinley Elementary. The attack got bipartisan condemnations from the heads of both major parties, and Governor Stitt called the act abhorrent. 
Ryan, what are your thoughts on the act and the, and the response? You know, these acts aren't just about defacing property. They're, they're an act of physical violence and intimidation, and they're using these acts against already marginalized communities to make them feel even less safe in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, it's not enough uh, for anyone, you know, Republicans or Democrats, it's not enough for any folks just to, de- uh, to condemn these despicable acts. Every one of us must be prepared uh, every day to confront hate where we see it. And that's not just, you know, whenever you hear someone saying something hateful or, or bigoted to confront them, but also to confront it in ways that we overhaul things like the criminal justice system, where we see conscious and unconscious acts of racial bias show up in that system every single day. We see it in the racial disparities that ex- exist there. We see it in uh, economic policies that perpetuate the cycle of poverty uh, from housing and limit housing opportunities, limiting education opportunities. You know, race and bigotry uh, on on all counts exist in a very real way in Oklahoma. And if you're on the receiving end of that, you know it all too well. These things aren't all that surprising to you. Uh, But for folks that are just being uh, uh, waking up to the fact that this exists in your streets, in your communities, we have to confront it. And we have to look ourselves in the mirror every single day and ask, what are we doing to challenge both individual acts and systemic acts of oppression and bigotry in our in our state. Neva, absolutely, and I think I think it is important to not only look at what's happening in Oklahoma, but, but also recognize what's happening at nationally. I mean, we have a situation that uh, the number of hate groups in this country rose for the fourth straight year uh, last year, and it pushed it to a record high. I mean, we have a very toxic combination of of not only this political polarization that's going on in the country, but we have so many more means to uh, uh, to, to have this propaganda, propaganda out there, you know, online, through uh, social media, all of the other uh, outlets. But when you think about the fact that there are a thousand plus recorded hate groups uh, that the FBI, the Anti-Defamation League, all of these groups are tracking, monitoring, and the statistics that continue to come out, and the fact that we are also facing it here in our state, we must be vigilant and proactive about it. It's something that we, and we have to educate folks about it. It's something that can't just be a passing, it can't be a passing story, it can't be a passing uh, headline. It has to be something that we begin to really look at and delve into and become much more vigilant in trying to not only understand, but to not just wait for something to happen and have the one-day reaction and try to try to put the positive to the negative, but rather do something long-term that that, that really stems this tide. There was a question also on Facebook from uh, somebody I saw that said asked, "Well, we shouldn't be uh, talking about this because uh, then that gives the uh, gives it notice to the person who did it and basically makes them uh, popular yeah. for a day." But but then other people were saying, "But if you keep silent." about it it's it's even worse this is you know and i understand that you know we uh, you know, in, in, the, in the wake of the New Zealand tragedy, Prime Minister of New Zealand said that she was not going to say the name right. of, of the uh, the shooter there. And I think that there's there's a lot of valid uh, reasons for not giving oxygen to individuals, but these ideas absolutely need to be aired. We need to have these conversations. These are this is as as awful as this is. It's a moment for people to have thoughtful conversations mm-hmm. about prejudice, race, racism, and bigotry in their communities, whether that's in a schoolroom, whether that's with your families, whether that's with your neighbors. You know, we're taping just right down the street from uh, the Murrah Building bombing memorial from, you know, 1995, Oklahoma was, you know, we, we saw an act of domestic terrorism here that has its roots in white supremacy and white nationalism. These hate groups are alive and well, and uh, they, are, they are thriving. And if we don't talk about uh, how they're, they're being, the, the fuel, uh, the oxygen to their fire, 
uh, and begin to root that out and to confront where it shows up, not just when somebody, you know, spray paints a building with some graffiti or blows up a federal building, but shows up in the way that we incarcerate people, we over-police people, the way that we prosecute people, uh, the way that we choose who lives where, uh, and our educational opportunities. If we don't talk about those things, uh, then we're doing a real disservice. Absolutely. And when, to, when last year, 2018, was the deadliest year for right-wing, uh, for right-wing extremism since 1999, since our Oklahoma City bombing took place, um, it is something to, to, to take note of, 50 people plus uh, in those statistics. And when you think back as, as recently as October, when you had the Tree of Life uh, synagogue in Pittsburgh, where 11 people were, were you know, gunned down. Uh, so these are, these are real numbers. This is real life and something that I think we need to pay real attention to. One year from today, the once-a-decade event known as the U.S. Census takes place. A coalition is launching a campaign known as Count Me in Oklahoma to get people to participate in the population count. Neva, an inaccurate count can affect Oklahoma. Absolutely. It, it affects Oklahoma. It affects every state. And I think that uh, uh, Joe Dorman, uh, with the, the leader of the Oklahoma Institute for Child Advocacy, one of the things why they have become uh, very uh, uh, very proactive in, in this dialogue is the fact that the statistic is that uh, with the U.S. Census every 10 years, that as many as 5% of children under the age of 5 go uncounted. So when you start talking those numbers, I mean, that becomes significant because those numbers are how the monies are uh, funded and appropriated coming down from uh, uh, from Washington and and it's 675 billion dollars billion with a B that the states and communities get uh, through the through uh, the result of um, these census numbers and how they're allocated and it goes down to things not only you know not only snap and chip and and uh, school nutrition programs but it goes to the counties where it affects uh, county roads and bridges mm-hmm. programs and so many other things and beyond that on the flips, you know, kind of on the other side of the ledger, you have uh, from a business standpoint, uh, economic development uh, is driven largely by shifts in, in census numbers and where they're going to, uh, what regions and what areas they're going to really uh, uh, key in on in terms of growth and 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 new business uh, uh, being uh, being developed. And then the the other aspect of this that uh, always comes into play is the fact that congressional districts as well mm-hmm. as legislative districts are going to be redrawn after the 2020 census and that's going to have a dramatic impact on each and every one of us right well neva just mentioned so many of the important political consequences as a result that result from an accurate census or an inaccurate census yeah, those over or under counts mean huge numbers and uh, huge uh, have a huge impact in how people are represented um, you know what we're seeing right now at the national level is that the trump administration has been trying to weaponize the census they've they've been trying to include a question about citizenship or documentation for the first time uh, <clears throat> i believe since uh, uh it's in the first time in 70 years that that question has been asked in the census if you look at the the federal uh, constitutional prerogative for the census it's who lives there it's not who's documented there or who's legal there, but it's who lives there. And when we talk about undercounts, we, there's a real fear that including that uh, documentation question in there, who's a valid citizen there, um, then we're going to have an undercount on, especially in Hispanic populations around the country. And that could have a huge impact right here in Oklahoma. Another thing, you know, to keep in mind with the census that I think is interesting, we don't think a lot about 
is prison populations. Oklahoma has huge prison populations, and many times those prisons are in rural areas. So we take people, disproportionately people of color, out of their communities, relocate them. So we make sure that urban communities, for the most part, become underrepresented, relocate them to rural areas, and then it gives disproportionate political impact to rural areas because we count inmates where they are incarcerated, not where they actually live. And that's a that's a big problem. And I think it's important when we talk about trying to find this information out that it is a it is a multi phase process. I mean, we have the we have the um, uh, mailed mailed version that the the folks get, but then there there are in person interviews that are conducted. There's a, a follow up telephone survey. So so there is an effort uh, put in place state by state to try to garner this information in the most effective way possible using multiple means possible. And uh, I think it's incumbent again upon us to make sure that people understand the significance of why a census has taken place. Oftentimes they you know it's another piece of paper, it's another survey, it's another demographic uh, ask that they they don't see uh, uh, they don't see the point uh, behind it and I think it's important because it only comes every 10 years and then mm-hmm. there's a real because it's that length of time I think it's almost we have to jump start and restart this whole dialogue and I think uh, I think the folks that are now trying to bring this out a year out I mean it gives them some time to gain some traction to educate the public and I think that's a positive yeah. I don't think I've ever seen it this soon it's pretty amazing well and, you know good job and then there's also going to be April 23rd of this so April 23rd, 2019, the United States Supreme Court is going to hear an appeal from a case that the ACLU brought challenging the citizenship citizenship question. A district court judge uh, sided with the ACLU's position that it should not be included. And now the United States Supreme Court is going to hear arguments on that on April 23rd. And they'll probably make a decision later this summer. Yeah. Starting this month, election officials are purging what could be tens of thousands of voters from the rolls. They are getting removed because of inactivity. And the last time this happened in 2017, nearly 300,000 names were deleted. Ryan, what are your thoughts on Oklahoma's use it or lose it policy on voting? You shouldn't have a use it or lose it policy for voting. I mean, the the idea here is that it cleans the voter rolls up, that it protects against voter fraud. But there's absolutely no evidence that uh, these these rolls are being used for voter fraud. And in fact, the only fraud that we've seen has been a fraud. We saw that in North Carolina where people were, you know, and it's not a matter of people casting ballots that they shouldn't be able to cast. It's a matter of, you know, people adding ballots that were never uh, counted in the beginning or that were never voted to begin with, you know, to actually change the physical count. And the way that we protect against that is to have pre and post uh, election audits, you know, have paper backups like we've got in Oklahoma there. Oklahoma has a good election system, but even then, whenever we've been graded by groups like the Center for American Progress, we still receive a C. And, you know, there are things that we need to be doing. Purging voter rolls is not the way to do that. And it has a disproportionate impact on elderly Oklahomans. It has a disproportionate impact on uh, minorities in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, uh, Elderly folks may may not have voted for a long time. They're, you know, they're going to be more uh, transient. They're going to move. And, you know, they may not get that piece of mail. The number of times the ACLU, we usually have like a voter protection hotline on election day. And I'll get, I'll almost inevitably, I'll get a call from somebody who will show up to vote because there will be a candidate or an issue that's just, you know, that they want to show up and vote. And they get to the, the polling place and they find out, well, I haven't voted since, you know, whenever I voted for Bill Clinton back in, you know, 1996. And uh, now I keep, they're telling me that I can't vote. 
Uh, and that's, that's just wrong. I mean, if, if you're going to remove folks from the poll, from the roles, uh, you better have a really good reason to do it in the state right now. It just simply doesn't. Neva. Well, I think the state has a process and has a reason, uh, reasoned, uh, approach to how they deal with the, with the state voter roles. And I mean, when you have a situation where someone who hasn't voted for four general election cycles, uh, they, they get uh, they they get a address confirmation uh, in the mail. They put are, are put on inactive status. I mean, there are multiple levels for them to be able to stay in the process. Now, if they once every twenty years decide they're going to show up to the polls and they want to be able to vote, I mean, there has to be some way for the uh, state election board to be able to keep these uh, keep these voter records in in good order. And I think that by the same by the same token, uh, when someone moves, when there's a death, when someone's con- convicted of a felony, when uh, you have um, someone certified as mentally incapacitated, they have to be removed from the rolls. And so there has to be a process uh, to have a way to, to maintain some integrity. And I think just this free-for-all, let's leave them on the rolls forever and have no process to determine are they still, even in the state of Oklahoma, alive, whatever the circumstances may be. I mean, there is there is a process and they have an opportunity to vote. And the bigger question, I think, you know, when we always start talking about the whole question of voting, again, goes back to the education process. I mean, when we have elections and we have so few people uh, voting, I mean, that's the, in my mind, that's the bigger issue. I mean, we had school board elections in the state of Oklahoma this week. And I mean, we had an Oklahoma City school board member elected by 502 total votes cast. I mean, we had a union public school uh, board member elected by 255 votes cast. I mean, in districts that are enormous in terms of not only the number of students being served, but in terms of the voters that had the opportunity that were on the rolls that uh, that could have could have voted in those elections. So I think there is a process. I think Oklahoma has proven, uh, as, as Ryan said. I mean, we may get a C on some scorecard, but the but the reality is we have very few problems uh, in terms of uh, conducting elections that the integrity and the veracity of what takes place uh, uh, has not been called into question. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.